be with you this morning. Welcome. If you're new or visiting, my name is Joshua Kirstein. I'm privileged to be the preaching pastor here at Disciples Church. Um, just thankful for God ordaining this day and giving us this opportunity to worship Him together in unity, song, and prayer, and now to look to His holy word. Uh, it's a, a pleasure to finally get to tell you, church, to grab your Bibles and turn to the letter of 1 John. Uh, we've been waiting to return to our sermon series in 1 John that we left off uh, before Advent and last November. Had some other business to do in the new year so far and uh, sickness that I had to overcome in the beginning of the year and thankful for my brothers to stand in the pulpit. And so here we are and just thankful. Uh, you'll find 1 John, if you're new to scriptures, in the very back of your Bible, just after Second Peter, just before Jude and Revelation. We're committed here at Disciples Church to really preaching through God's Word faithfully for the life change He wants to do in you is, is in His Word. And we as preachers have learned to put away our own ideas and concepts and tricks of the trade to really just be faithful expositors of God's Word and see the mighty change that He's doing in our lives as a result of that. And uh, what a joy it is. We really do love it. And so uh, thankful for this sermon series that we're in and for the new year that God's given us. As you turn to 1 John chapter 3, I am excited to report to you that I have a new son. Uh, Roman Judah Kirstein. Jennifer and I adopted him this last Friday, January 21st, 2022. It's a picture of, of all of us in the courtroom and um, my oldest son Noah, our middle son Parker, and Natalie, our three children by birth, and, and then our three children by adoption, Piper and Savannah, and now Roman. And so we are so thankful uh, for God's provision of Roman in our life. We got him when he was two days old, and for two years now we've loved him as a foster child. And Thursday we had our last visit with a social worker. Which brings to a close uh, a chapter, a pretty significant chapter in my family's life. Uh, eight and a half years of foster care. Uh, when Jennifer and I first met, even as in our young 20s, she said, I really have a, a longing to do foster care. And, and uh, we had our children and, and just, okay, maybe one day. And I always felt like and we have so many to care for in the church. And, and uh, like it just wasn't ready for that. And then God worked on my heart. And saw that we could do more. We take up our cross and and uh, give more. And uh, so we jumped in eight and a half years ago. Forty six kids, we've we've been blessed to care for in that time, and three that the Lord ordained to make permanently part of our family. I wanted two, um, and and now we have six, and the minivan is full, and uh, God is good, and I wouldn't trade him for the world. So thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your support, for your tears, and all of this journey and what's come with it. Uh, it, has, it has been a journey. Um, and we are very thankful that God's put it on many of your hearts. Many of the families in our church have taken up the call to love on orphans, care for them. Uh, and uh, God's doing that. And so uh, we have many adopted kids in our congregation, many more that are being cared for. And so just thankful for God's work and through disciples in our community. I pray that it would continue. We would continue to support each other well. So thank you for loving the Kirsteins. The Kirstein ate. And uh, here we go. First John chapter 3. Um, I, want, I want to remind you of verse 10. It's where we left off. Uh, John has a closing statement in verse 10. Then he moves to verse 11 to explain what he means by living out the love of God that's at work in, in us as people, especially in our love for one another. So let's, let's see verse 10 again, and then I want to read in the entirety the passage we'll be in today and then next Sunday. We'll do a two-parter here in verse 11 through 18. So 1 John 3.10, John said, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And now our passage, 1 John 3, 11 through 18. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, 
that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. God's good word. Right out of the gate, I want to note that this is the first of a few major sections of emphasis on our love for one another that we're going to see in this letter. Uh, a call to love and God is love and our, and our call to love one another very specifically is highlighted majorly in this letter of 1 John. It is one of the major themes of the letter. and We're about to reach that section. It's why we've done a new version of the bumper with a new emphasis of Scripture for us in that vein. Uh, while John circles back to this point multiple times, I love John's attention here in particular to one's spiritual standing and living as it relates to love. As we dig into this passage, church, notice with me that John speaks of theology, what we believe. He also speaks of morality, how we live, and the social impact of our faith in how we act towards others as it relates specifically to love. John is clear to show us that the absence of God's love at work in and through us means an absence of faith in God, and therefore separation from God and eternal punishment from God because those who uh, are in their sin remain in their sin and worthy of that punishment. With lots to cover and, and glean from in today's passage, I want to jump right in as we look at this first part of verse 11. 1 John three eleven. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. John has already spoken in this way earlier in the letter. Let me remind you, 1 John chapter 2, verse 24, he said this, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Twice in this verse, John stresses that we should remain in the believers should remain in the truth that came to them, to us, through our ears at the beginning of our Christian walk. When John says what you heard from the beginning, that is a reference to the preaching of the gospel by the apostles for those who were reading this letter. Paul spoke well and similarly this way in his letter to the Colossians, Colossians 1, 5-6. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before, of this you have heard before, in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So what John is talking about here is the gospel, the good news of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Since the day we heard the gospel, testimony of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and he gives us ears to hear and eyes to see. We understood and received God's grace in, in this gospel truth. This, so this is what John is doing in chapter 2, verse 24, and then now again in chapter 3, verse 11. He's calling for true Christians to abide, remain, in the very good news of Jesus that he saved us in and is growing us in as we then live out our love for one another. John is driving home an essential point here. The gospel is not just a truth that we affirm in our minds. It's also a reality that we experience in our lives and in our heart and our soul. Paul speaks this way in Galatians chapter 2.14 when he says that we are to walk in line with the gospel. When we do this, we avoid the pitfalls of legalism or license. 
The gospel is the complete and utter surrender of our unrighteous life in exchange for Jesus' righteous life. The gospel is what makes us right with God. That's justification. And it is also what empowers us to delight in and serve God with our life. That's sanctification. The gospel so changes everything about us that it restructures our motivations, our self-understanding, our identity, our, our view of the world. The gospel changes our heart. It allows everything else about us to be authentically and truly transformed by thinking and hoping and living out the gospel, the ramifications of the gospel, in every dimension of our life, spiritual, psychological, financial, physical, corporate, social. The gospel is to be applied to every area of our thinking, our feeling, our relating, our working, our behaving. We cannot and need not ever add to or move beyond the gospel. There can only be a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. It's not good news. Apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is no forgiveness of sins, no hope, and no transformation into his likeness. Disciples Church, we must hold fast to the true gospel and let it abide in us every step of the way. The message of the gospel truth is that the love of God has been poured onto us in the most amazing way and so then we turn to love one another as the proper response to God's love shown in Christ's life, death, and resurrection for us. John 3.11 For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that you should love one another. So see with me here that this is not just a command to do it is built on that gospel truth we've heard from the beginning that transformed us and we had eyes to hear and uh, I'm sorry eyes to see and ears to hear and, and it changed us it transformed us and so out of that gospel transformation we love one another don't do this without the gospel undergirding it oh it just becomes moral conformity it just becomes religion the gospel transformation and empowerment unto authentic and consistent love for one another is what lays under the command that John is putting forth and reminding his hearers here in the second part of verse 11. Hear the whole verse with me again. This is the message that you have heard from the beginning. That we should love one another. So John is saying this, again, most famously, and most prominently, we'll see in 1 John 4, 7. It's the theme of our new bumper. It's a very known scripture that I look forward to expositing later in our series. And there's much of this command to love one another that I want to really save for that time, our time in chapter 4. But I wanted you to foundationally see with me today that what John is clearly referencing here is in reference to Jesus' command to the believers. When he speaks, Jesus speaks in John 13, 34, where he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Let's consider these words of Christ for a moment as they're essential and foundational to what John is reminding the believers here in chapter 311. First, the first question that comes to mind, we hear this command of Christ, a new commandment I give to you. What is new about the commandment to love one another? Right? I mean, that can't help but come to mind. The great commandment, the foundation of all the commandments is to love God and love one another, love each other. So what's new about this, as Jesus says? And the answer lies in a couple layers. First, the aim of the commandment, as Jesus gives it, as John's reminding us in our passage today, is not for all people. It's more specific than that. 
the moral law and the Ten Commandments and the Great Commandment is over all mankind. Still to this day, all mankind is responsible for us to obey the moral law of God. Okay? This commandment is for God's chosen people, for the redeemed. In its context in John 13, Jesus gives this commandment to those whom he gives saving faith, who, who are his, his elect, his saved. It, he gives it to the 11 disciples who trusted Jesus with their lives, died for Jesus, all but John. It, it was not given to Judas, who denied Jesus. The context of Jesus' words here in John 13 reveal that Judas had just left the room. And once he did, Jesus gives this new commandment to love one another. Why exclude Judas? Because it was for those who would have true faith in Jesus and therefore the love of God in them and the ability to love one another, those in the family of God. Let me say it again in a different way. This command is for those who give their lives to Jesus and are saved by him. It's a commandment given to the church, the redeemed. We are to love one another just as we have experienced the love of God through Jesus Christ. It is Christian love that Jesus wants to be a special beacon of our testimony and kingdom identity while his people press on in this temporary time and place on mission for his purposes. Look at the next verse that Jesus adds in John 13, 35. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So again, how is this special to just the church? First, because the love of God is made manifest in a special way in Jesus Christ for his chosen people, his redeemed. It is made special for the disciples who truly trusted him and have experienced and will continue to experience God's love for them in their redemption. It is a love that those who deny Jesus and are separated from God don't experience. Right? They, they rightly are under God's wrath. God's hatred for them. It is a love that is only for one another. Notice this command to love one another is not the love your neighbor command or to even love your enemies that we see elsewhere in Scripture. Those are needed. We are to obey those, but they're different. This is a call for the love of God that is made manifest in the life of Christ to be displayed in the unity and love and bond of God's redeemed people for one another. Jesus qualifies and clarifies that this love is to be the love that he has shown us. It is personal. It is the love of God made accessible through Jesus and is to be lived out in his people. Understand, church, Jesus is the source and the pattern for our love. All of this clarity is why it's new. It is a new covenant love built on the finished work of Christ in our place. To take his love shown to us and then to put it on display in our love for one another. Now, what does love for one another look like? Again, we'll spend time with this surely in future sermons as we work through the rest of the letter. But for today, let me point us to one of my favorite places that I think describes the uniqueness of our love for one another, uh, as according to the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 12, verse 10. He says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. This is not... Love one another just with deeds. He's saying, have feelings for each other. Brotherly affection here is the key. The idea is that our heart would leap for each other. When we're around each other, when we think of each other. Because we are blood-bought family. 
We use that term here a lot at Disciples Church. It really means a lot to us who have come to understand it. That in many ways in our culture, there is high regard for our blood family, right? And all the devotion, all the meaning of what it means. And all of God's good design for the blood family and him ordaining life and children to be raised and parents and to be known and siblings and all that comes with that. I would argue that what God intends for the blood-bought family is greater than the blood family. Why? The blood family is to serve a role and a, and, and a purpose in your life for a temporary time. The blood-bought family is a forever family. You being adopted into the blood-bought family is family that you will know and love forever. Think about that. It's game-changing. And so what God is doing in the redeemed is giving us an affection for each other that many of you will testify. I could even pick you out in the room. I know who have said this. That what you're coming to know and experience among this fellowship in the blood-bought family is wildly bigger, greater, and more important than what you've ever known in your blood family. And I believe it's intended to be that way. I believe there's something that God's doing in us to... to be united together and have this deep love, this brotherly affection that is unlike anything else for each other. It's a family affection, a tender affection. The verse is calling for Christians to have this tender affection towards one another with family love. This is a command for how we are to relate to each other in the body of Christ. We are to feel an affection, a tender affection for each other. Now before we think about the implications of this, let's look at a few other texts that point the same direction of what is this love for one another. 1 Peter chapter 1.22 Since you have in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart. Here again is something much more than just treating each other well. There's something from the heart, something earnest, something that has fervor. This family affection for the brethren. Philippians 1.8, Paul says to the church, For God is my witness, how I long for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. The word affection there in the Greek as we look to the original text is, is intestines, inner organs. The idea is my guts long for you. I love you. Not just with an act of willpower, something forced. There's a deep affection that God is growing in me for you. And when we're not together, I miss you. I'm homesick for you. That's the love we are to have for one another. When this is not happening, there's a fundamental problem among the brethren, among the church. And there's something missing. And I just want to rejoice. I want to rejoice with you, church. God is doing this work in our family. The testimonies that I hear from you, the way that we elders are seeing this happen among you, so many of you are just saying, I never knew church could be like this. God's doing something special, something deep, something game-changing, and working in and through us. And I just... I'm thankful for that. I'm excited about the ways that God will continue to grow and mature it among us for the light that that is as a city on a hill, for those who are desperate for gospel renewal, those of our brethren who have been really in places where they're just really parched and just, just missing the fullness of what God intends the church to be and, and, and to have. And so and not any, by any way of comparison or scorekeeping, but just in all the longings of our hearts to be all that God has called us to be in his word. Amen? And we'd be really living that out faithfully, sacrificially with each other. The revealed will of God according to his word for his blood-bought children is not just to do good things or say nice things to each other in passing. It's not just enough to pray for each other or speak decently of others. All those are critical and demand the work of the Holy Spirit in and through us to do them well. But God's will for us is revealed throughout Scripture as more. 
Christ at work in us, church, will produce things like these quotes in Scripture. Love each other with brotherly affection. We will open our hearts wide to each other. We will feel for each other a kind of tender affection and longing that would naturally be expressed with a holy kiss of love. Now, the reality is, some of you, if you're honest, may be thinking, what if I don't feel that tender brotherly affection for some of my brothers or sisters in Christ. You hear the command of Jesus upon you. Love one another and open your heart wide and feel a longing for them and joy. But if you're honest, you, you think of a few people that you don't feel that way about them. You know they're saved. You know they're part of our family. Maybe they've hurt you. Maybe they've let you down. Maybe they've missed an expectation you've had for them. Maybe just the way they do their lives or prioritize their lives, it just kind of rubs on you. It just kind of grinds a little bit. It's not the way you would do it or think that it should be done. But you say, Lord, I hear you. I want to submit to your righteous command in my life. But I don't feel this truly, that depth of affection for this brother or sister. Or maybe you're thinking, my battle is I've never known a family who loved each other this way, this deeply. We never said much of I love you and our feelings for each other. But Lord, I want to yield to you. I want to have a right response to your call in my life to do this and embrace the goodness and the authority of this. I want to obey, but Lord, I don't know how. I'm stuck with this person or this, these couple people. And I just say, if this is you, know that the rest of this letter, the work we're going to do, I think really God is setting the table to, to bless you, to help you. Um, that we would do real business here. Some would maybe complain that this is going to feel a little repetitive in, in the work that we're going to do in loving one another. And yet it's so major for our testimony. It, it is a major part of what God intends to do in and through us that um, we need it. We need it. And there's a depth and there's a sanctification here. So I just encourage you, don't get tired of it. Keep leaning in. There's some layers here that I think the Lord will do in us. And so I want to continue to address it as we go forth. But today I just want to give you a couple of things in Bible presses us towards that I think will be helpful for you if this is you, if you're struggling in this way. Number one, pray for the Spirit's power. Pray earnestly that God, the Holy Spirit, would move in His power on your heart and work a miracle, something supernatural in you, something you or I won't do, can't do on our own, that God would change your heart towards other adopted brothers and sisters. That he would genuinely create true Christ-powered affections for one another. No matter how different they are than you, or how different they do life, that the Spirit is able to do a mighty work in your heart, and that you would pray genuinely to ask him to do that. Pray for the Spirit's power. Number two, focus on the heavenly identity of your sibling. This is really important, that we keep our eyes focused on the heavenly identity of our brother or sister and not the earthly frustration that plagues us. And see, in our flesh, we tend to over-focus almost sometimes exclusively on the ways that they've performed on the horizontal. Right? And, 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 and the ways we've been disappointed by someone, the ways they've missed the mark. Brother, sister, this will defeat you every time. And, and I want to share with you a quote from Pastor John Piper that blessed me years ago uh, that speaks to this, that, that is a great encouragement. There's a greater reality, he says, to think about and focus on, but you must make an effort. Focus on the reality of God's fatherhood. When you think about a Christian that is hard to feel affection for, say, God is her father. God is his father. 
And when you see him or her, think, God is their father. And then saying, God is my father. And we have the same father. Jesus is her savior and and my savior. The same blood that bought her, bought me. The same Holy Spirit that indwells him, indwells me. The same love flows from God towards her that flows towards me. She is my sister. He is my brother. We will live forever in the same family. We will live forever together in joy and ecstasy in the presence of our Father in the new earth. Church, we need to preach these truths to ourselves. Jesus says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. There is a freedom that you can find only in Him from many of our defective emotions, our fleshly emotions. So I encourage you, pastorally, as one of your shepherds, to not keep feeding the defective emotions with just earthly thoughts and horizontal observations, how you were wronged or how you were let down. God knows those details. God will take care of that. He'll settle those accounts. We need to set our minds on the great realities that make you and I and all of us blood-bought family and put them to work. Amen? Number three, remember Christian love is a growing thing. Sometimes you can be upset with yourself that you're not there. You're not where you want to be. And I just want to encourage you, Christian love is not an all-or-nothing thing. It's a growing thing. 2 Thessalonians 1.3, the Apostle Paul commends Christians this way, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And listen here. The love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Love is a growing thing. So you may have some of it. And be a real Christian. And not enough of it. But God is doing a work in you as you abide in Him and mature and are sanctified. You may feel some affection towards a fellow believer, but also wrestle with some negative emotions. That doesn't mean that you're not a Christian. It means that you're at war with your flesh. Paul speaks about in Galatians 5. And you're trying to be led by the Spirit. Keep on, weary soldier of Christ. Know that God will refine you as you press into Him. Put to work His power to forgive and to not hold grudges. To seek each other out for reconciliation that honors God and makes your testimony bright in these limited days we have under the sun to serve Him and live for Him. Paul prays this very way in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3.12. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Church, the evidence of our redemption, of our transformation in Christ is our love. The love of God that will be at work in and through his people is a great assurance And so now look with me uh, at the next verse of our passage as we continue to move forth. 1 John 3, 12 turns, he says, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. John jumps right in the middle of his command to share what we should not be like and gives a very memorable example in the firstborn child of mankind. His name was Cain. Look with me at the troubling testimony of their story that we find in the really early parts of your scriptures there, Genesis 4, 1 through 8. Just to remind you of this testimony briefly. Adam knew Eve, his wife, 
and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother, Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had great regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain his offering and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Cain welled up with jealousy because Abel's offering was received by the Lord and Cain's was rejected. Later in Hebrews, we see that it was less about the quality or the substance of the offering itself, but that Abel had faith in God in his offering and Cain did not. Hebrews 11.4 By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God's commending him by accepting his gifts. Church, the root of our sin is an absence of faith. I'm going to get into this in more detail this coming Wednesday at our midweek gathering as I'm going to be privileged to be our teacher Wednesday night on the spiritual discipline of faith. Very much looking forward to that lesson, the roundness of understanding faith better according to Scripture and putting it to work in our lives. And so I want to get into the meat of this point then, but for the sake of the point I'm making this morning, let me read to you Romans 14.23. Paul says very clearly, very succinctly, a very sobering statement. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. I think so often we think of sin as wickedness and terrible things. Think about the weight of this statement. Whatever is not from faith is sin. There are many things that we can do on the outside that look righteous. They look God-honoring. But if they're not done in true faith to God, in God, they are sinful. Scripture will even call them wicked. Why? Because their aim, without faith, is not God in His glory. They're something in creation or something selfish. The root of Cain's evil is his unbelief, his lack of faith. The fruit of Cain's sin is where his unrighteous deeds are most revealed in the murder of his brother. 1 John 3.12 We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil, And his brother is righteous. We only love others, church, if our heart is rightly fixed on God. In the gospel renewal that he's given us who belong to him. Later in this letter, we will see that God is love. And therefore, we must rightly believe in God and know God and have his love at work in and through us, if we are going to truly love one another. Understand, everything else is evil. Everything else is selfishness. If it's not from God, it might look like love, but we must understand it's not love. Why? Because God is love. So therefore, what it is is counterfeit. It's a replica 
This is John's point. Why he goes back to the creation narrative to use Cain and Abel as this polarizing example of the difference between the one who trusts in God in faith and therefore loves rightly with the love of God and the one who does not have faith in God and so the fruit of his flesh is self-centered and wicked resulting in harm to others and not love for them. In this case, the worst kind of harm. The violent taking an ending of his brother's life. I want to pause here for a moment and just simply recognize that there could possibly be people here today or listening to the podcast later who don't know God with true saving faith. You might have come to church a long time. You might do your best to be a good person, but you are still the Lord of your own life. To, to be saved is to die to yourself and live to Christ. It's to have His righteousness put upon you. It's to be forgiven of your sin. For God to give you eyes to see and ears to hear the beauty of the gospel so your sin is gross and, and, and you want nothing to make excuses about it. You confess it to God and you see your desperate need for a Savior in its place. And so you trust your life to Jesus. You move from being a slave to sin to being a slave of Christ. And it is your greatest joy in all of your life to do that. To surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus. To know God and be reconciled to Him. Without salvation, you are dead in sin, Scripture says. Not sick, not doing okay. You are dead in sin. You might be moving along this life well, making money, beautiful family, great car, but dead in sin is your worst problem. And in this, you don't know true love because you don't know God. You are his enemy in your sin. The love of God is not at work in those who are his enemy. Your core issue is a need for salvation. That you would die to self and trust your life to Jesus and be saved. It is our deepest prayer that you would confess and trust Jesus and be saved. There is nothing greater that will ever happen in your life. We'd love to celebrate that movement of God in your life with you if and when that is your reality. It's our deep prayer that this would be his work in you today. And if not today, then soon. There's nothing greater than to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. To then get to love others with His amazing love. All right, look with me now at verse 13. John says, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Don't be surprised when the world hates you. And yet, (laughs) all too often... We're surprised, aren't we? Why? Because we're guilty of thinking too horizontally. We're guilty of thinking with our flesh and not with our faith. When we think with our flesh, then we're working hard, we're, we're doing good things, we try not to be selfish, try not to harm people. And so we think that the economy of that means I should receive good things from them. Right? And at minimum, not be hated by them. Christian, we have to be so mindful of this truth because it is inevitable that if you belong to Jesus, the world will hate you. And we're seeing this unfold in wicked policies and laws that are being formed and passed that are against the church, that are against God's good ways. I spent all of last week preaching very specifically on one of those topics as persecution is coming against our brothers closer and closer to home. There's a part of us, this is not right. It's not fair. They're attacking the righteous ones. And while there's truth about it not being right or good, We have to hear John's point. Don't be surprised that the unrighteous, the wicked, those dead in sin and serving Satan, hate us who belong to Jesus and are growing in righteousness, 
in his righteousness. Jesus taught his disciples that they will be hated. Luke chapter 21, 17. You will be hated by all for my namesake. Not by some, by all. If Jesus said this to our brethren, then why are we surprised when we are even hated by some? Jesus taught his followers that because he chose them out of the world, saved them, that the world will hate them. Gospel of John, chapter 15, 19, Jesus says, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. To belong to Christ is to be hated by his enemies. Jesus wanted to help fortify his followers in the fact that he knows of the hate of the world. He says in John 15, 18, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Hate is a strong word, but it's intended to be a strong word here. It's intended to undergird us with a clear understanding of the reality of our standing in in, in this exile land that we find ourselves in all of a sudden as sojourners. This is not our home. We belong to Jesus and his kingdom. We're, We're on a mission here. We're in a war. This is a very real thing for the church now and moving forward, growingly. Jesus says he was hated by the world. Think about that. The only man to have never sinned, hated by the world so much they murdered him. Called him guilty when he wasn't. John 1, 10-11, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, speaking of the Jews, and his own people did not receive him. Not only did they not receive him, they rejected, they yelled, crucify him, and had him killed. Why? Because they didn't know him. Because they were his enemy. It didn't take long for that persecution, that hatred of the world, to transfer to his devoted followers. Consider with me a moment. I, I've shared with this, I think, with you recently, but I just want to remind you again the reality of persecution on the church. After Jesus' death and resurrection, as we look at the book of Acts, we see the apostles were quickly arrested and put in jail by Jewish authorities, not once, not twice, but again and again and again. Beaten, sent out of the city, don't do this, not because they stole something, not because they killed someone, but simply because they were proclaiming Jesus alone saves. In chapter 7, Stephen, one of the faithful, is stoned to death, his body beaten to death with rocks, unto death by a mob. In chapter 8, Widespread persecution breaks out on all the believers, spearheaded by a man named Saul. God would have a very divine and amazing purpose for Saul, who would be saved and become, be named Paul. By chapter 12, the first apostle is murdered. James, the brother of John, is killed by Herod. Persecution continues. Martyrdom continues until all of the original disciples are martyred for their faith all but john the author of our letter was not killed for his faith but he was exiled to patmos as the gospel begins to spread to the mediterranean world where the gentiles are in control not the jews that meant now they're being persecuted by the gentiles too all the non-jews christians are persecuted majorly by the romans who really led the way in christian persecution for hundreds of years An example of persecution in this era was under the Emperor Nero. Christians were arrested under his rule, tortured, crucified, thrown to wild animals. They were burned as torches in his gardens while he threw parties. The 
Christians were persecuted for generations under Roman Catholicism, which was heightened during the Protestant Reformation as faithful brothers and sisters stood up for the truth of God's word. They were heavily persecuted and even killed for standing on the truth of the gospel and the authority of God's word, not the Catholic Church. Now, while we live in a relatively big bubble here in Western America, we must know that all around the world today, Christians, faithful Christians, are truly hated and persecuted and even killed for testifying the gospel of Jesus Christ, proclaiming his truth, standing on the authority of his word, under wicked people, wicked regimes who are under the rule of Satan. Growingly, right here in the Western Americas, those who boldly stand for biblical truth and Christ's teachings are being persecuted, hated, fired from their jobs, canceled, ostracized, and even imprisoned. As we've seen our faithful brothers in Canada recently imprisoned, new law that passed that I preached on last year, any speaking of homosexuality or such, um, means up to five years in jail for a felony. That's a reality that's coming close. It's happening Church, this is not just happening by atheists or false religions. It's happening by elected governments. It's happening by some of our very own families and those we've run with for a long time. What Jesus wants the disciples to understand before he went to the cross, what we must understand today, to die to self and to live to Christ means we will follow him into persecution at the hand of the sinful world. Jesus will lead us not only to victory, this is true, wonderful, amazing, praise the Lord, we rejoice, but in this time and day, into persecution and real suffering. There's a movement, a gross movement, perpetuated and taught in far too many churches, a prosperity gospel. It's not biblical. What we want to know is the What is Christianity according to Christ? And what did Jesus teach? That my true followers will take up their cross daily, willingly embrace persecution and suffering to stay faithful to him, follow him. Jesus said in John 10, 4, when he has brought us out, All his own, he goes before them. The sheep follow him, for they know his voice. We know him. We're his. Think about that with me for a moment. That's so good news. I'm not his enemy. I'm not foreign to the Lord. I know him. I'm loved by him. I'm secure in him. But the fact that he goes before us also means the sobering reality of following him means following him into real persecution and suffering. John and Jesus are blessing the church to say, understand this will happen. Don't be surprised when it does. This is coming. And when it does, don't think that something's going wrong all of a sudden. Peter affirms this point in a major passage we know well, 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13. He says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. I want you to know the depth of the beauty of what it means to share in Christ's sufferings. Paul speaks this way often. I was blessed by a conversation I was having with my brother Rob, one of our faithful elders, This last year, and he was just sharing with me some of his testimony and gospel transformation, remembering in his own walk, after many years of being in church, there was a depth of gospel understanding that just overwhelmed him in beginning to really grab hold of what it meant in the beauty of getting to share in Christ's sufferings. And it was wonderful and a blessing for me. So much so that we get that, that we are not surprised, but we rejoice. Rejoice that when the fiery trials are happening, we who belong to Jesus get to share in Christ's sufferings. 
That this is a reminder to look deeper than our circumstances to all that we are in Christ. Because you know Him, you've been redeemed by Him, to belong to Him means we will reign with Him forever in glory. And so that undergirding, the beauty of that gospel truth, gives us an ability to rejoice in the midst of temporary suffering, even if that temporary suffering is for a lifetime. Because that lifetime is short compared to eternity. Think of that, church. To let that good news get underneath you and be like a rock. This is Peter's emphasis. This is John's emphasis. This is Jesus' emphasis. Rejoice in great trial because we belong to Jesus. And because we belong to Jesus, we will take up our cross daily and we will follow Him and we will suffer like Him until God deems in His providential perfection to take us home, to be with Him, to dine with Him, feast with Him, and enjoy Him forever and ever. And so this leads us back to our text to conclude this morning of what he's saying in the first part of John 14, 1 John 3, 14. Look at the first part of the verse with me. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. We are not dead in sin any longer. We've been made alive in Christ. This is the gospel. This is salvation. Colossians 1, 13-14 He, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In 1 Corinthians 15, 22 For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Church, this is great news. We rejoice the gospel transformation in our lives and what it means for our life. No longer enslaved to only sin, to hate, to murder others, but now empowered and renewed by Christ to love one another. 1 John 3.14 We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. The evidence of our being alive in Christ is that we don't hate others or hurt others or act selfishly, but instead we love the brothers and the sisters of Christ. We, what once divided us in sin and selfishness is reconciled in Christ. The fall of man separated us. Think, think of Adam and Eve's initial response to what happened in sin. They, they hid, they covered, they, judgment began, individuality began, all that came with that. And in Christ, we're united. We're brought back together to walk together, live together, practice the one another, serve the Lord together. Christian, this is what Christ in your life looks like. Our, our fleshly hate is put away. We're now dead to sin and alive to Christ to do what is righteous and do what honors God. Paul said it so well in Romans 6.11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. Because you are alive in Christ's church, you will love the brothers and sisters of the Lord. Amen? And I'm excited to continue to delve into this. That it would be our testimony that we would love one another. We'd grow in this. Jesus said it well in John 13, 35, by, all, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. May it be so, by God's grace and for his glory. Amen? Pray with me. Thank you, Lord, for your glorious gift of your holy word and our opportunity to spend time with it this morning. And no, no greater thing we could be doing on a Sunday than gather with the saints to worship you and serve and pray and give and be equipped with the word be moved and motivated to 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 serving you with our days and making much of the gospel uh, being convicted by the word that we would confess sin and we would turn from it that there would be maturing in us and 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 to be used by you in these days 
And so, Lord, do that work in us, that we'd not just be hearers and be done, but we'd be doers. We would be accountable. We would share and testify these things we'd meditate on throughout the week. We would share with one another. We would put to action. Thank you, Lord, for your mighty work in our lives. Um, We want to worship you and the Father who loved us in Christ, um, that you would be exalted. So hear us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.